This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, On the Media, Media Matters, The Young Turks, The Onion Radio News, Counterspin, The Majority Report, The Jimmy Dore Show, and The Bugle. And a spoiler alert for any listeners who would prefer to wait and see the movie, this episode does contain the answer to the crisis in the Middle East. Here is your next quote. If you liked Afghanistan and Iraq, you're going to love this. That was one of the many comments zinging around on Twitter this week, warning us of an impending war with whom? Uh, Iran. Yes, Iran. Very good. We're going to have a war with Iran. That's exciting. So, um, did you enjoy the first Iraq war? Did you love the second one? Well, sadly, there's nothing left to blow up in that country. But don't worry, Middle East quagmire lovers. There's a whole unblowed up country right next door. (laughs) To war fans, Iran looks just like a completely unpopped sheet of bubble wrap. You just can't (laughs) keep your hands off it. Like, oh, let's do it. So in addition to Rick Santorum and Newt Gingrich and John Bolton, among others, threatening war against Iran, you've got Israel basically saying to the U.S., you'll know we decided to go ahead and blow up Iran when you hear a big boom. You know, starting a war with Israel, I think Iran needs to call Egypt, and they'll be like, ooh, that's a bad idea. Yeah. You don't don't start up with them, because they might take a week to end it. Yeah. (laughs) The other day, the other day, and this is true, Congress had a hearing on whether the government of Iran was, quote, rational. Our Congress did that. <laughs> later that day, later that day, a group of pots held a hearing on whether kettles were black. So. <laughs> what it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over there. Telling me I got to beware. I think it's time we stop, children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down. There's battle lines being drawn. Nobody's right if everybody's wrong. And this is the sound of distant drums. The crisis in the Middle East, fueled by Iran's nuclear ambitions, continues to escalate tonight. There's a growing possibility of an attack by Iran on American soil, hence the circling of the wagons, essentially. So what will ultimately work in stopping Iran's nuclear program, sanctions or bombs or something else? The prospect of attacking Iran has become a point of honor on the presidential campaign trail for nearly every GOP candidate. This is a president who should have instead communicated to Iran that we are prepared, that we are considering military options. They're not just on the table, that are in, they are in our hand. Two or three nuclear weapons wipes out most of the Jews who live in Israel. I believe Ahmadinejad would do it in a heartbeat. And I would be saying to the Iranians, you either open up those facilities, you begin to dismantle them and and make them available to inspectors, or we will degrade those facilities through airstrikes. I said nearly every candidate. There's always Ron Paul. I think that would be the most foolish thing in the world to do right now is take on Iran.
This week, Iran reacted to the sound of American drums by warning it could launch preemptive action against its enemies to ensure its own security. Meanwhile, a recent Pew Research Center poll finds that 58% of Americans say it's important to prevent Iran from developing nuclear weapons, even if it means taking military action, versus just 30% who say it's more important to avoid military conflict with Iran. The majority sentiment, however, is not shared by national security experts. Here's Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Martin Dempsey, on CNN earlier this week. We are of the opinion that the Iranian regime is a rational actor. And it's for that reason, I think, that we think the current path we're on is is the most prudent path at this point. Scott Shane is a national security reporter for the New York Times. He wrote this week that it's a little puzzling that Americans should talk about another war, especially after the recent dispiriting experience of protracted war in Iraq and Afghanistan. Micah Zenko, who studies conflict at the Council on Foreign Relations, said that the next war always looks a lot more promising than the last war. That when you're faced with a complex foreign policy challenge that goes on for a while, there's an urge to do something, and nothing does something like military action. Which I guess explains why, with the exception of Ron Paul, the Republican presidential candidates are competing to show how tough they would be on Iran. That's right. I remember in one debate, Rick Perry actually upped the ante by saying he would actually favor reinvading Iraq. And yet, the national security experts say that an attack on Iran is not only irrational, it actually would endanger our security. There is a theory that holds a lot of sway in the U.S. government, and I think with some Israelis, that ironically a strike against the Iranian nuclear program might be the quickest route to Iran having a nuclear weapon because that would convince the regime that it needed a weapon to survive and that it would hunker down and build a nuclear weapon as soon as it possibly could. So why this disconnect between the politicians and the national security experts who have all the inside dope? There does seem to me to be quite a striking gap. In fact, that was on display at a couple of recent hearings in which members of Congress were pressing intelligence officials. The members of Congress were mostly saying, come on, come on, you you know Iran has decided to go for a nuclear weapon. And the officials, notably Jim Clapper, the director of national intelligence, was pushing back and saying, no, that intelligence agencies do not believe Iran has made a decision yet. In your article, you said that echoes of the period leading up to the Iraq war in 2003 are unmistakable. We in the media report a lot of somewhat loose statements that imply that Iran is close to a weapon, that Iran wants to make a weapon. What loose statements? Who's making them? Well, we are. (laughs) (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. How are they attributed to senior administration officials? Well, I think sometimes it's actually just our summaries of what's going on. Do you say that Iran is believed to be working toward making a weapon. Sometimes we use these wiggle words, which no one really knows what they mean, working towards a nuclear capability. It is difficult to describe because on the one hand, you have Iran pouring huge resources into a secret 
programmed to enrich uranium. On the other hand, you have fairly clear statements from American intelligence officials saying they have not yet decided to make a weapon. So how do you characterize that? And I think the analogy with 2002-2003 is that there were varying descriptions of what weapons of mass destruction Saddam Hussein might have, what he might be buying and what it would mean, aluminum tubes come to mind. Our newspaper, the New York Times, among others, got into some trouble by overstating the evidence for Saddam's weapons, which, of course, famously turned out not to exist. And so here at the New York Times, we've had a number of discussions about how do we phrase this stuff. Our public editor wrote a blog item sort of slapping us on the wrist for one story that he thought had gone a little bit too far. The Ombudsman of the Washington Post did much the same at that paper, slaps on the wrist. But of course, there are big differences between now and 2003. As you note in your article, you don't have an administration hell-bent for war as you did in the Bush administration. Are the same people fueling the pundits and the debates right now? Probably the group who then were very much in favor of taking on Saddam Hussein would tend to be hawkish on Iran, but I don't think the impetus is really coming from there. I think part of it's coming from Israel in the form of predictions or threats that Israel will mount a strike. Israel, certainly, but no less, surely, this political season and the endless series of debates where Iran is the looming issue that Republicans have turned into a point of distinction between themselves and the administration. Absolutely. I mean, Iran has an election coming up very soon, and then we're obviously in the middle of a long election season. Historians of war say that this is a dangerous period where you have a lot of rhetoric being thrown around for domestic consumption as much as for international consumption. And there's always the possibility of a series of missteps that leads to a war that no one particularly wants. So what is the responsibility of the news media when confronting a season as dangerous as this? Our obligation is to be precise and careful, try to represent a range of points of view. We do have a policy here to say in every story that Iran claims it is not trying to build a weapon. But there's a way to say that, which just... Is dismissive. Right. Yeah. And it's probably more credible to say U.S. intelligence officials say that they do not believe Iran has made a decision to build a weapon. And to do our own reporting, uh, a colleague of mine, Elizabeth Bumiller, wrote a very interesting story talking about how many American military experts, including a lot at the Pentagon, do not actually believe Israel has the capacity to mount a strike that can set back Iran's nuclear program. Most of us had been writing, you know, will Israel strike or will they not strike? And the assumption was that Israel certainly had the capability of striking. This raised serious questions about that. But I think another assumption that gets buried into the reporting is the idea that there's a sort of binary choice here. You don't do anything and Iran gets a weapon, or you strike against them and keep Iran from getting a weapon. It is much more complicated than the sort of black and white way that we tend to portray it. You know, there was a really interesting study that was done after the first Iraq war. The question asked was, 
how much do you understand the background of the war, the context, what's the argument about. The more people watched television, the less they understood about Iraq. And I just wonder if the same goes for the political debates <laughs> and Iran. <laughs> well, I do think that the political process tends to boil everything down to very simple choices. Mitt Romney has said on the campaign trail, elect me and Iran will not get a nuclear weapon. Re-elect President Obama and Iran will get a nuclear weapon. So that's just the nature of politics. Unfortunately, that does not always fit the subtleties and contradictions that are inherent in a problem as complex as the question of Iran's nuclear program. Not always, huh, Scott? Not always. Not ever. Not ever. <laughs> Scott, thank you very much. Thank you. Scott Shane is a national security reporter for the New York Times. This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Danny Herrera. Recently, conservative media have been pushing for Israel or the United States to launch a military strike on Iran's nuclear facilities, in some cases justifying an attack by claiming that Iran is on the verge of acquiring a nuclear weapon. I think Iran continues to make very steady progress toward getting a nuclear weapon. Defense Secretary Panetta said just last month they could do it within a year. I think they could do it well within that. I think 2012 could be dispositive on this question. Their claims, often distortions of what military experts have actually said, are nothing new. For years, conservatives have been suggesting that a nuclear Iran is just around the corner. Here's Rush Limbaugh in 2005. According to the International Atomic Energy Agency, uh, good old Mohammed al-Baradai, they are what? Uh, months away from being able to produce a nuclear weapon. Our good old CIA said uh, not long ago, that don't worry about Iran, it's 10 years away. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. You know, the warmongering against Iran continues here in the U.S. Associated Press had an exclusive over the weekend where they said uh, diplomats say that Iran is poised for a big nuclear expansion. Uh, which diplomats? It didn't even say. The whole article didn't mention if they were American diplomats, Israeli diplomats, who they were. Who cares? Oh, do watch out, here comes Iran. Now, why bother with all this warmongering? If you're the right-wing government of Israel, uh, you know, you've done uh, airstrikes before, uh, Israel has, against uh, Iraq and against Syria when you thought that they had plants. Uh, so why bother with all this, you know, propaganda, et cetera, et cetera, if you're a neocon, uh, neocon supporter of uh, the Likud government? Well, um, it's because in this case, Israel has several problems, one of which is that 
it's hard for them to actually do the strikes. Uh, New York Times is a good story on this today, saying that they just simply might not have the capability. General David uh, Deptula, who apparently is a retired Air Force uh, Lieutenant General, who actually uh, did the bombing raids for us, and he was the Air Force's top intelligence official uh, in 2001 in Afghanistan and in the 1991 Gulf War. He says it's just not going to be that easy. They might not have enough planes. They might not be able to refuel them. It's a 2,000-mile trip, uh, round trip, to go to Iran. They have to either go through Turkey, they have to go through Saudi Arabia, or they fly directly over Jordan and Iraq, uh, which poses different problems. Will Jordan let them do it? And even if they do that, they have to refuel the planes in midair, which they don't have great capacity to do. They only have 100 planes, which apparently, of course, we've got a lot more than that. The United States does. And so it might not be as easy as they think. The Iran's uh, defensive uh, capabilities are not as bad as uh, Iraq and Syria's were. And so it's possible that a couple of the planes get shot down. I mean, it could be a mess. And to be able to take out four different sites where Iran has nuclear energy capabilities, not nuclear weapon capabilities, very important distinction, they just might not be able to pull it off. In fact, uh, Lieutenant General uh, Deptula says the only army in the world that could pull that off is the United States Army. Hence, neocons here in this country need to get us into the war because Israel might not be able to do it by themselves. So. Here's another problem that Israel has. Almost all of the top military and intelligence officials, both in the US and in Israel, think it's a bad idea. They think Iran is a rational actor, not someone who's, as soon as got a nuclear weapon, would go ahead and push the button. They're like, that's crazy talk. In fact, three former and current Mossad heads have said it's basically a bad idea. Let me tell you who they are. Current Mossad chief Tamir Pardo said that Iran is a threat, but not an existential one. In other words, they will not attack us immediately. Their intent is not to destroy us. If they have nuclear weapons, it's a problem for us in terms of strategy and negotiations, but it's not like they're going to attack. Um, how about uh, former Mossad chief Ephraim Halevi? He said, it is not in the power of Iran to destroy the state of Israel, uh, but uh, so they, he doesn't believe they will attack either. How about Israel uh, Defense Forces chief of staff Dan Halutz, he's, and it's a former one. He said, Iran poses a serious threat, but not an existential one. They're all saying the same thing. Calm down. This attack has a lot of different problems. If you do it, you're going to start a war we didn't need to start because we don't have an existential threat. Now, uh, Mayor Dagan, who was the Mossad chief from 2002 to 2011, he says that if we do it, it would mean regional war. In that case, you would have given Iran the best possible reason to continue their nuclear program, or a nuclear program, because they don't currently have one. So he's saying it would be ironic and, and counterproductive, because then if we attack them, they say, well, the only way to prevent that attack is if we have nuclear weapons. By the way, another person who shares that uh, idea is General Michael Hayden, one of the most right-wing guys in the Bush administration, saying that, hey, you know what? This would, if we, the attack would, quote, guarantee that which we are trying to prevent an Iran that will spare nothing to build a nuclear weapon. Okay, all right, how about Martin Dempsey, though? I mean, these guys are former officials, some of them are current, some are Israeli, U.S., you get the whole broad spectrum. But how about the head of our Joint Chiefs of Staff, the one guy who would know best? Well, let's go to his testimony. I think that Israel has the capability to strike Iran and to um, delay 
the production or the the uh, the capability of of Iran to achieve a nuclear weapon status, probably for a couple of years. But some of the targets uh, are probably beyond their reach, and of course that's what that's what concerns them. That's this notion of a zone of immunity that that they uh, they discuss. And if if that were to happen, um, do you uh, do you believe that Iran would engage in uh, retaliatory measures, not just against Israel, but against United States interests in Iraq and Afghanistan? That's the that's the question with which we all wrestle, and and the reason that we think that it's not prudent at this point to to decide uh, to attack Iran. Not prudent to attack Iran. He's telling them. Don't do it. It's a bad idea. Uh, press further, he has this to say. You think that it's still unclear, that, that they're moving on, on a path for nuclear technology, but whether or not they choose to make a nuclear weapon is unclear? It, it is. I, I believe it is unclear, and, and, uh, and on that basis, uh, I, I think it would be premature to um, exclusively decide that, uh, that the time for a military option was upon us. Again, clear as day, saying it's not even clear that they're going to have nuclear weapons or they're trying to get nuclear weapons. That's not clear at all. So what the hell are you attacking them for? Now the third part. When you observe Iranian behavior, um, does it strike you as uh, highly irrational? Uh, does it strike you uh, as sort of unpredictable? Or do they seem to follow their national interest in a fairly calculating way that that is a great question and, I, and I'll tell you that I've uh, I've been confronting that question since I commanded Central Command in 2008 and we we are of the opinion that the Iranian regime is a rational actor and it's for that reason I think that we think the current path we're on is is the most prudent path at this point they are rational actors why does our chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff the most the highest official in our military say that because what he's saying is these guys are not gonna fly off the handle and attack us with a nuclear weapon out of nowhere if we start the war we'll be starting a war we don't need to start they're not going to start it in fact our national intelligence estimate that is the estimate of the entire intelligence community said that they are quote guided by a cost-benefit approach rational actors they're not gonna fly off the handle and use the nuke this is our intelligence collectively okay uh, how about uh, James Clapper who's the director of national intelligence he said in 2011 we continue to judge Iran's nuclear decision-making uh, is guided by a cost-benefit approach they're not crazy people they're gonna make rational decisions based on a cost-benefit approach don't attack Iran that's what they're all saying yet when you turn on television with the ex exception there of Fareed Zakaria who covered this well Everybody's talking about, we gotta go, we gotta go there. Ballistic missiles and lab coats and center. Oh my God, Iran could attack if counterattack or if it attacked in the first place, right? And we've covered that for you before. So why? Why are all the intelligence officials in uh, Israel and the US saying, don't go, it's a bad idea? And at the same time, we have this tremendous propaganda in the US to go to war with Iran. Because the right wing government of Israel and their allies here in the United States have made a decision. Israel can't do it alone. We've got to push the U.S. into war so they can do our dirty work. And we don't care that it's a bad idea. We don't care that our generals think that, U.S. and Israeli. We don't care that intelligence thinks it's a bad idea. 
they have their neocon philosophy. They think if they obliterate all the Middle Eastern governments that are opposed to them, somehow the Arabs, and in this case the Persians, will bow their heads and go, oh my God, you were so right, our mistake. Well, it's not going to work that way. You got to listen to the people in this case that uh, know the intelligence and know the military options and they're telling you not to go. But here's the way that they think about it. They think, look, if Israel does the original bombing, what's going to happen? Iran is going to counterattack. Once Iran counterattacks, what's going to happen? The U.S. is going to get sucked into war and finish the job. Because what, what are they going to do here? If you know anything about American politics, if Israel, it doesn't matter who they started the war with, it doesn't matter who was right or who was wrong. If Israel gets counterattacked, it is not a 99% likelihood. It's a 110% likelihood that the U.S. will join Israel in whatever battle it has. Israel could attack Norway for no reason because they say, ah, we didn't like the Vikings back in the day. We would go to war on Israel's side. So that's the logic. That's why you see all this propaganda. That's why you, the right-wing government of Netanyahu thinks, ah, who cares what Mossad thinks? Who cares what my generals thinks? Who cares what the American generals think? All I got to do is press the button. Once I press the button, the U.S. is screwed. We uh, dictate their foreign policy for them. They got to come join us. And that's how we get sucked into war. Let's hope to God it doesn't happen. It's The Onion Radio News. God refloods the Middle East. This is Doyle Redland reporting. In what theological and meteorological authorities are calling a wrathful display of Old Testament proportions, the Lord Almighty reflooded the Middle East today. Harley Minogue is a non-denominational spokesman for the all-powerful being. God only promised humanity that he would never again flood the entire earth. He never said he wouldn't flood specific areas. Though regretful about the severity of God's punishment, Mideast peace negotiators nonetheless praised him for coming up with the first ever viable solution to the ongoing crisis. Deep water, pulling me down. Deep water, afraid I'll drown. With the U.S. and Israel still mulling over when and how to attack Iran, media coverage continues to raise the stakes. On the March 5th broadcast of the ABC World News, anchor Diane Sawyer announced that Barack Obama and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu were talking about, quote, the growing nuclear threat from Iran, close quote. Sawyer warned that it might be the last chance for the two to meet face-to-face -face before a possible Israeli attack. Correspondent Jake Tapper explained that the two leaders are adamant that Iran, quote, cannot be allowed to develop a nuclear weapon, close quote. But what if Iran did? 
Here's how Tapper framed the issue. What might result? A nuclear arms race in one of the most unstable parts of the world, an attack on Israel, and or terrorism. Indeed, those terrifying worst-case scenarios could be three possibilities, but there's also at least one other possibility, that none of those things would happen. Tapper also explained that there could be downsides to an attack, high gas prices, for instance, and there could be more dangerous repercussions, too. ABC had former counterterrorism official Richard Clark explain that Iran could use the terror weapon to attack U.S. and Israeli interests throughout the world. This is the state of the Iran discussion. Powerful nations speak openly in violation of international law of launching an unprovoked attack on another country. Media speak about this as a matter of timing and logistics. But if Iran were to respond to an attack, well, that would be unleashing the terror weapon. Sometimes I don't know what's right to do. Sometimes I can't tell. I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong, progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. The Obama administration, from everything I read, really does not want to go to war with Iran. And you have to give him credit for that. I know it's damning with faint praise to some degree of going to war with Iran would be insane. Uh, but look, there's a ton of pressure in Washington to do it, and they're resisting that pressure, and they're fighting back. You know, you, you've seen Leon Panetta, the Secretary of Defense, you've seen the head of our intelligence, uh, Clapper out there uh, testifying over and over, General Martin Dempsey, uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, saying that it is ill-advised, uh, Iran does not have nuclear capability at this point. One of my favorite uh, interactions was with Senator Lindsey Graham, uh, when he's uh, pressing Clapper on uh, nuclear weapons. And he's like, so, uh, Iran is definitely making nuclear weapons, right? And Clapper says, uh, no, they're not. And Lindsey Graham's like, well, you might, maybe you misspoke. Uh, did, did, I, but they're working on a nuclear program, right? And he's like, um, no, actually, they're not. <laughs> to the best of our intelligence, they're not working on a nuclear program. Lindsey Graham's like, okay, okay, let's move on anyway. <laughs> okay? And of course, you're going to be shocked to find out a bipartisan group of senators, including Joe Lieberman, has decided that you know, we should pressure the government uh, to go to war with Iran earlier. Of course, they say threaten war. We, we just want to give authorization. We're not saying we should. Gee, anybody remember how we went into Iraq about how some bipartisan group of senators just wanted authorization? So as all this is happening, uh, President Obama sent his um, national security advisor, Tom Dolan, to go talk to uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, in um, Israel. Well, how'd that go? Uh, well, unfortunately, not well. According to the Israeli press, um, an outlet named Debka, uh, they had a meeting and uh, Donalyn uh, tried to say to Netanyahu, hey, we really, we're not kidding around. We think it's a really bad idea if you guys bomb Iran. I don't think you're going to be able to pull it off. I think it's going to start a larger war, etc. 
Uh, and uh, what was Netanyahu's reaction? Yeah, I'll take it under advisement. Not really interested. Brushed him off, which he's done many times before. Max Blumenthal has a really interesting article about how Netanyahu has actually studied under neoconservatives here in the U.S. Remember, he was here in the U.S. for a long time and studied here. And then they have a, a political, um, basically, alliance. And so Netanyahu might literally be against President Obama politically here. Uh, and that he owes some benefactors here in the U.S. who are all right wing uh, to do as much damage to Obama as possible. So when Obama says his national security advisor, Netanyahu goes, yeah, okay, all right. <laughs> Here's your walking papers. Move along. We don't really have that much of an interest in what you think. So now that's out of the Israeli press. Uh, that is not good news. Well, one piece of decent news is that uh, finally some of our press is beginning to turn around just a little bit here. Now I told you we were going to fight back. I told you it was going to have some effect, and it's beginning to. Scott Shane writing for the New York Times of all places, saying, "Hey, you know what? This rattling sabering, rattle sabering." Uh, against Iran does kind of remind some people of rattlesabering against Iraq that we did and it does look like a similar movie. Thank you for finally noticing. Now this article gets written after the New York Times and the Washington Post uh, ombudsman criticized their own papers saying, what are you doing? You're not presenting the full evidence on Iran. You're only presenting the so-called evidence that Iran is working on a program and you're not presenting the counter evidence. That's exactly what they did in Iraq. So the fact that they're actually pointing it out in the, in the main part of the paper is a good uh, story and is good news. Now, unfortunately, the press in this country has been so demagoguing this uh, Iran issue that there was already a 2010 poll that I've told you about. Seven out of ten Americans already believe that Iran has a nuclear weapon, which is not the case at all. Not true, okay? But 70% of the country believes it. And then 58% of the country, in a recent Pew Research Center poll, said, well, of course, we should take military action. But wait a minute, are you in favor of the wars we started, the two disasters? Well, no, no, we hate Iraq. And 75% of people in America right now say we should get out of Afghanistan either by President Obama's timeline or earlier. 75% of the country, they're tired of those wars in the Middle East. But the minute they, the press starts demagoguing, Iran, Iran, the missiles, the nukes, what are we going to, and what do people say? I, I don't know, I guess we got to do something. Okay, fine, military action. And they make military action sound so easy. Like, oh, well, of course, you know, we bomb them and we do bunker busters and then it's over. Yeah, how'd that work out for us in Iraq and Afghanistan? Over 10 years later, is it still over? No. And now three quarters of the country hates it. Wakey, wakey, they're doing it to you again. And you know, by the way, those two wars, how much did it cost us? Well, 46,000 people wounded in Iraq and Afghanistan. That's our guys, our troops, okay? 46,000 wounded, 6,300 killed, let alone the hundreds of thousands of civilians killed in Iraq and Afghanistan. And oh, by the way, it cost us $3 trillion. But you know what? Somebody made that $3 trillion. It came out of our pockets. Whose pocket did it go into? It went into the pockets of the defense contractors. And of course, whenever you go uh, turn on television, Erin Burnett just did a segment on it last night. Shockingly, she was again demagoguing on Iran. Really, I didn't see that coming. So she brings on her guest, uh, former Defense Secretary William Cohen. What does he say? Oh, he's, oh, Iran is definitely making a nuclear weapon. But that's not what our intelligence says. That's not what our military says. So why did you just say that? 
Oh, did we neglect to mention that William Cohn is a lobbyist for the defense industry? Oh, oops, CNN forgot to mention that. Those guys are the ones making the $3 trillion. So some people want this war. The neoconservatives in this country want it. Probably the Christian dominionists, the end times crazies want it because they want this massive war in the Middle East so Jesus can come back. And that's a huge chunk of the country, unfortunately. And they have a lot of political uh, power in this country. And then, and more importantly, the guys who make money off the war, defense contractors and oil speculators. Gas prices are already going up based on the idea that we might go to war with Iran. So those guys get rich and those guys contribute a ton of money to our politicians. And by the way, are the guys who are all the military analysts on CNN, ABC, NBC, and all the channels you turn to, in the mainstream media at least. So buyer beware, know what they're selling. They're selling you war. And unfortunately right now, well, I, I, you know, I say we're headed there. I think it's 50-50. I'm not saying it's definitely going to happen. I, I really believe we can fight back, but it, the signs are not good. Let me just say one last thing about this. Think about it, we're stuck, man. We talked about this on the current show last night. If Netanyahu, this crazy right winger in Israel says, yeah, I'm not gonna listen to my Mossad chief who's warning me not to do it. I'm not gonna listen to two other former Mossad chiefs. I'm not gonna listen to my defense guys. I'm gonna push the button. Well then what are we gonna do? We're screwed. Because is there any of you out there, does anyone, liberal, conservative, moderate, whatever, does, do, does anybody in the country believe that if Israel attacks Iran, and Iran attacks Israel back, of course, what are they gonna do, lie down? No, they're gonna attack, right? Because they've just got war declared on them, they got bombs dropped on them, right? So they're gonna fight back. The minute Iran hits Israel back, does anyone believe that the US will not go into war uh, supporting Israel? Uh, unless Israel wipes them off the uh, board, uh, maybe they just destroy them and they don't need us. But the minute they need us, oh, we're going. Aircraft, uh, carriers, you know, uh, Every ship we got, every drone we got, headed in that direction. If you don't think that, then you don't know a thing about American politics. Not a thing. You might want to go and try some other field because <laughs> there's no way that this country doesn't support Israel at 100% the minute that it's in any degree of trouble in a war. So that gives Israel all the power. So they, they can go into war they like and the U.S. has to back them. How do you like them apples? All right, Jake, um, this is for the TYT Army. I gave Jank an assignment today, a new project. And Jank's project is to keep us out of war with Iran. Mm -hmm. To keep America out of war okay. with Iran. This project I am now giving to every member of the TYT Army. Okay, Go. this is what we're right. gonna do, okay? We are not gonna let the stupid corporate media and the military industrial complex send us to yet another bullshit war, okay? This is our job, this is our assignment. Let's get it done. What we have on our side is indisputable truth. We know exactly how they engineered this the last time. They're doing the same exact thing here. When you point it out to people, they're like, oh, oh the problem is you're so right, right? And we have the entire intelligence community and the entire military actually on our side this time. It's a big advantage, so we, we have a shot at this thing. I don't know how you can help, but, but God bless your heart in right, any here's way how you, that you can. Here's how you can help, okay? Talk to uh, your local press, uh, write to your congressman, uh, tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell Randy Gonzalez, okay? Don't drag us into another war with another country in the Middle East.
President Obama gave a press conference yesterday, had a very good uh, response in terms of war with Iran. Is it meaningful? I don't know. I could come up with an argument that the more Obama postures as not rushing headlong into a war with Iran, the more room he has to um, to sell our involvement, to say that he couldn't stop uh, Israel. But then again, I could also come up with the argument, the, the reverse argument. So let's take it at face value. I was rather impressed by uh, this response as to uh, the Iran war rhetoric. What's said on the campaign trail? Uh, you know, those folks don't have a lot of responsibilities. They're not commander-in-chief. And when, when I see the casualness uh, with which some of these folks talk about war, uh, I'm reminded of the costs involved in war. I'm reminded of the, the decision that I have to make in terms of sending our young men and women into battle and the impacts that has on their lives, the impact it has on our national security, the impact it has on our economy. This is not a game. There's nothing casual about it. Uh, and you know, when I see some of these folks who uh, have a lot of bluster and a lot of big talk, but when you actually ask them specifically what they would do, it turns out they repeat the things that we've been doing over the last three years. Uh, it indicates to me that that's more about politics than actually trying to solve a difficult problem. Now, uh, the one thing that we have not done is we haven't launched a war. If some of these folks think that uh, it's time to launch a war, they should say so. And they should explain to the American people exactly why they would do that and what the consequences would be. Um, everything else is just talk. I have to say that doesn't sound like a president who is trying to prepare the country for war. At the same time, you know, you got people like Senator Carl Levin coming out and saying, like, he thinks that an Israel attack, uh, an Israeli attack on Iran is, is imminent. So uh, we don't know. But... I'm not convinced that this uh, war chatter doesn't simply just benefit a lot of different parties. And hopefully uh, it's not happening. Falling down again, reach out to me. Hi, I'm Sam Cedar. You may know me from my shows on Air America Radio, from filling in for Keith Olbermann on Countdown, or even, God forbid, my directing shows like Comedy Central's I'm With Busey. If not, you should really get to know me. Not personally, of course. I think we'd both find that uncomfortable. But if you're a fan of the best of the left like me, I think you'll enjoy my daily live show and podcast, The Majority Report, at Majority.fm. It's a daily dose of political news, analysis, and guests like Chris Hayes, Robert Reich, Digby, comedians like Mark Marin, Janine Garofalo, filmmakers like Morgan Spurlock and Lucy Walker, and on occasion, between my rants on raising taxes, ending wars, and decorporatizing our democracy, I can be mildly amusing. 
I'm unbought and unbossed daily on the Majority Report at majority.fm. Doesn't mean a thing. They're beating the drum in the media for war with Iran. And it looks like Israel's really going to strike Iran. Does it not look that well, way? Well, I'm not sure because I think that um, uh, I was encouraged that Obama tried to tamp it down. And I think if if Israel thinks that America, you know, if Bush was in office, then Israel would be, we can just go ahead and America yes, yeah. will be behind us one Hundred percent. I think it's good that Obama is kind of messaging to them, "No, we're not. We're not going to be behind it." If so, so that might prevent them from doing it. I mean, I, I don't. I don't expect anything will happen before the election. Oh, really? You don't think? No, no. Because they're <clears throat> that. I just. I, I, think, don't. I, well, I don't. I think Netanyahu is crazy enough and uh, strident enough to do something to force Obama's hand because then he, if he can't be seen not protecting Israel in the election, you know what I mean? Why are we not if, – if we're l- – let's say, okay, we're going to go down that road where we say if Iran gets a nuclear weapon, uh, they're, they're going to use it and we have to stop them. <laughs> yeah. let's, uh, if you apply that logic, why are we not going after Pakistan? They harbored the guy that masterminded 9-11. Yeah, I know. They, and they have it. How come we're not going after North well, Korea? Because our foreign policy uh, of the last 10 years it dictates that we, we, sh- we should never invade the country we're supposed to invade. Right. <laughs> we're yes. always supposed to have a conflict. If another country is a, is a threat, then we find a country near it yes. and, and have a war with them. It's, that's, that's our foreign policy. It's like the Academy Awards with the old actors. They get mm. the award, but it's never really for the movie they should right. have gotten. Yeah. Right. It was for the <laughs> Al Pacino's uh-huh. Sense of a Woman. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The Color of Money with Paul uh, Newman. Wow. Yeah, like Iraq should have got invaded in the 1992 when they went into Kuwait, right. but we did it for this sure. time when they didn't deserve it. Right. For, for 9-11. Lifetime achievement. Because <laughs> the, the first Gulf War was a much better picture. It really, it really was. And I think Dustin Hoffman was in it. Yeah. So. But it's good that we're, you know, talking about another country having weapons of mass destruction that we should go to war with, because that really worked out great the last time. <laughs> yes, it certainly does. Okay. You know what? Actually, Benjamin Netanyahu called in to talk to me about oh, this. Oh, really? Had, yeah. He had something to say. Jimmy, this is Bibi, <laughs> Bibi Netanyahu. I'm having a lovely time visiting your country. I'm sure many Americans turned on the telly yesterday and wondered why their president was talking to Gene Simmons at the White House. <laughs> well, that was actually me. <laughs> Mr. Obama and I were having rather tense talks about your country's commitment to military intervention against Iran. I just don't know how to get through to him. There's an old Yiddish saying, so groise the orans und nishtan. Loosely translated, he has such big ears, but he doesn't listen. <laughs> this is one intractable schwarzer, I can tell you that. <laughs> I mean, what is the big deal? All that we're asking is that America unleash a crippling missile strike on a nation of 79 million people, thereby radicalizing a massive generation of Muslim youth, prolonging the war on terror for another four or five decades, and destabilizing an entire region of the world to the extent that massive ground troop commitment would necessitate a draft and cause untold bloodshed and destruction in and around one of the oldest nations on earth. (laughs) <laughs> On my worst enemy, I would wish this. <laughs> but we'll get our way, I have no doubt. APAC, the Christian right, etc. 
Like I've said in the past, America is a thing easily moved. Not so much in Israel. You wouldn't be able to tell from the media here, but there is this annoying debate there about what sort of role we should play, what sort of relationships we should have with our neighbors. And, get this, many Israelis are opposed to preemptive war against Iran. Ha! And I am much less popular at home with those people than I am up on that APAC stage here. To be honest, I much prefer my dictatorial role in the U.S. government to my democratic role in the Israelis. Because <laughs> in America, that's where wars are born, baby. <laughs> if you can convince a Christian fundamentalist he's on God's side, he will burn down a village full of women and children without blinking. I've seen it. You don't find that in many places in the Western world anymore. But to get our way, we always have our greatest weapon. Way more powerful than any flimsy Iranian nuke. The word anti-Semite. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone cowers before its power. It's so loaded that it can fell even the most eloquent Goliath. The word anti-Semite used to mean someone who hates Jewish people. Now, it simply means a Gentile that questions anything that Israel does. <laughs> Special thanks to Alan Dershowitz and Simon Wiesenthal for their excellent fieldwork on that one. <laughs> Pioneering the world of etymological warfare. <laughs> and if you object to this, that makes you an anti-Semitic anti-Semite. You have no place in the discourse. <laughs> so unless you want to be labeled an anti-Semite... I strongly suggest you get out of our way and simply hand over your foreign policy to APAC and myself. That's right. Easy now. And nobody gets hurt. <laughs> well, no one you know. <laughs> you Americans. <laughs> you think you're so free. <laughs> Adorable. <laughs> All right, Jimmy, come visit sometime. We miss you. I miss your Shana Poonam. <laughs> <laughs> election news now and it ran through itself an election this week but it was more of an election costume than the real thing it's like someone dressing up as a slutty nurse for halloween it doesn't mean that you're actually a nurse and it's actually pretty offensive to the thing that you're dressing up as <laughs> this wasn't just democracy with a lowercase d andy it was democracy inside inverted commas with a question mark at the end of it as well as a winking emoticon <laughs> All the candidates in the Iranian election had to be pre-approved by Iran's Guardian Council, which meant that the contest was effectively between different conservative factions, uh, largely those who support President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad and supporters of the Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei. 
basically your choice was either conservative with an uppercase C or conservative with an uppercase K. <laughs> it was like choosing between full sugar Coke and full sugar Pepsi. They both taste the same, both are extremely bad for you in large doses, but both undeniably give you a jolt of energy. <laughs> Is that, how, is that how you sort of get yourself functioning in the morning now? Just a little yeah. bit of uh, extreme right-wing Iranian politics? Yeah, because I'm just trying to kick coffee, Andy, yeah. and that's yeah. <laughs> it's the only thing that really sparks yeah. me up. Some some hardline clerics just get you out of bed in the morning. So you have one sleeping with your dog in his little kennel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. a good idea. Why not? Yeah. Just wake me up every morning with a call to prayer. <laughs> just don't want your dog sort of... Hoagie wakes me up every morning with a call to prayer. So it's not a call to prayer, it's kind of a wine to dump. (laughs) Also on the subject of Iran, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli uh, Prime Minister, has entertained the world with his comments on the Iranian nuclear programme, in which he said, ladies and gentlemen, if it looks like a duck, if it walks like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, then what is it? What is it? That's right, it's a duck. Or it's Mick Jagger with a heavy cold and a minor dose of rheumatism, still cranking out satisfaction like he's a 25-year-old. Awesome display by Netanyahu. Uh, but he he, he, uh, he finished this sentence. He said, uh, if it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's a duck. But this duck is a nuclear duck. <laughs> and you cannot really put in any clearer terms the problems the world faces with Iran, John. It is a giant nuclear duck. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, the, the real concern is... Do the Chinese have a big enough pancake <laughs> and enough plum sauce to deal with that nuclear duck? I think the concern is that they're going to use that nuclear duck, Andy, and you know if it has the range, they're going to fly it over to Israel so it can just take a shit on Jerusalem. That's that's their worry. I guess that is a thing. I mean, what do you do with the duck? That, I mean, even if Netanyahu is right... And this is not the first time an Israeli politician has used the duck analogy. In 2000, the Speaker of the Israeli Parliament, uh, Avraham Berg, said, listen, let's not fool ourselves. If it walks like a duck, if it talks like a duck, if it sounds like a duck, it's a Palestinian state. (laughs) No, it isn't. It's a duck. It's a duck. And if he then followed up and said, oh, no, hang on, no, it is a duck. Or maybe he... Well, if the Palestinian state is a duck, you know, maybe he, this was this was an olive branch. He was really saying this mm-hmm. is this is just a duck. This is nothing, mm-hmm. nothing to be worried about. Unless maybe did God hate ducks? I can't remember the Bible. Oh, God, was that on the good list or the naughty list? Because ah, Moses, oh, shit, no, that's Santa. Moses <laughs> floated on the uh, floated on the River Nile without being pecked at by a duck. So they can't have been all bad. Mm-hmm. Ducks. That's true. And in the New Testament, uh, according to the recently discovered papyrus containing uh, the gospel according to St. Lionel. Jesus did once kick off a parable by saying, sorry I'm late, parablers, uh, a duck crapped on my donkey. <laughs> nightmare to get it out, I'm telling you, absolute nightmare. Anyway, you didn't need to know that. So, <laughs> let's get on with business. So, hands up, who likes being nice to people? Well, have I got a treat for you today? Right, strap in. Once upon a time, there was a lovely little girl who was swept away in a tornado with her little pet doggy. God, he was great, wasn't he? Yeah, he, but that's, he could spin a yarn. Benjamin Netanyahu emphatically, Andy, gets the Bugle Award for quote of the week <laughs> because it really was an absolutely incredible piece of speech-making. And, in fact, that speech can be anything you want it to be in different forms. It can be like a beat poem, Andy. You see, Iran claims it's enriching uranium to develop medical research. 
Yeah, right. <laughs> if it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, and quacks like a duck, then what is it? That's right, it's a duck. <laughs> But this duck is a nuclear duck. <laughs> and it's time the world started calling a duck a duck. A duck. <laughs> Or, Andy. Or, it can be like an epic speech in a $300 million American movie. <laughs> you see, Iran claims that it's enriching uranium to develop medical research. You're right. If it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, then what is it? That's right, it is a duck. But this duck is a nuclear duck, and it's time the world started calling a duck a duck. So let's get out there and let's kill those fucking aliens. <laughs> the point is, it was an amazing speech, Andy. It was an absolutely phenomenal speech. Ehud Barak, the uh, Israeli defense minister, said about Yasser Arafat in 2002 Yasser Arafat. Happens to behave like a terrorist. He looks like one. He walks like one. He quacks like one. <laughs> That is the key giveaway yeah. for all terrorists. Andy. Yeah, when and they get when they get nervous, isn't it? They quack. It's like a tick when they get. Nervous, it is, isn't it? and it is. I think it is frankly incredible that most airports now do not have <laughs> quack detecting technology. Yeah. That you yeah. don't just suddenly jump, try and surprise them, no, like, just do like a, a loud sound. Just, just a little pond with bits of bread in. <laughs> They can't know, as soon as anyone dives they, in, terrorists. They can't resist they it. They cannot resist <laughs> it. So what are the options then for dealing with a duck? I mean, you could shoot it or strangle it. Yeah. Or headbutt it in the beak. <laughs> But, I mean, should, in this situation, I know, you know, let's not rule out diplomacy with the duck, John. Maybe maybe we should be feeding the nuclear duck, duck bread, bread to earn its trust and take a bit of time to get to know the duck and understand its concerns. And then once we've gained its confidence, just... Train it not to shit on our cars. I think that's... <laughs> you've got to play the long game with the ducks. But all through this, it, you have to get the feeling that Israel is posturing like an Italian man with a new scooter and a passing lady to impress. <laughs> so the parliamentary elections uh, on Friday in Iran were Iran's first national elections since 2009, which, uh, you may remember, ended with people rioting in the streets and Iranian protesters being attacked by besieged militia on motorbikes hitting people with sticks. So not exactly a ringing endorsement of the whole process back then. So this time they were much more careful. Uh, the leaders of the opposition Green Movement uh, have been under house arrest for over a year and were completely barred from taking any part in the elections. Uh, the results were a win for the anti-Ahmadinejad Conservatives, uh, those all loyal to the uh, uh, Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khamenei. And uh, it has to be tricky for Ahmadinejad now uh, to thread the needle of power when you have a Supreme Leader <laughs> hovering over you. It's like being the coach of a sports team, trying to get your team to listen to you while you have a Turbo Supreme Ultimate coach who claims he's been appointed by God right over your shoulder who can get rid of you any second. Or well, it's basically exactly like being manager of Chelsea. <laughs> But the, uh, the defeat for Ahmadinejad and his loyalists, uh, including the fact that even Ahmadinejad's sister lost uh, her election, means that he will face a more hostile parliament in his final 18 months in office. And it really brings it home to you, Andy. We have only one and a half years left of Captain Crazy, the Aradan arsehole, the man who put the mad in Ahmadinejad <laughs> to enjoy. Ayatollah Khamenei uh, described Iran uh, this week as moving into a more sensitive period in its confrontations with the West. Yeah, and he's right, Andy. 
Iran isn't going to be the kind of paint your bedroom black and listen to thrash metal <laughs> disaffected teenager of confrontations now. It's going to be the listen to Morrissey and read quotes from T.S. Eliot and playing the acoustic guitar kind of disaffected teenager <laughs> while developing nuclear weapons in a subterranean bedroom. <laughs> and uh, the end could be coming soon for Syrian President Assad after Russia and China have finally stepped up to the plates uh, today uh, through the UN and said that Assad now has a maximum of 20 more last chances to stop slaughtering his own people. Wow, they are talking tough. So, the end game is near, John. Thanks for listening, everyone. So over the past couple of episodes, there's been a conversation about a, a, a relatively uh, minor joke that was told in passing on the Jimmy Dore show. She's Gorgeous. really attractive, yeah. right? And she's got such a nice smile. I felt so and sorry for her. And I hear she really her. puts out. I, I, <laughs> I felt very sorry for her. It was uh, called out as sexist by, uh, by a caller and was compared to what Rush Limbaugh had been saying recently about the woman who uh, testified in front of Congress. The joke itself, I believe, is less relevant, but it did open the door to uh, what I think is an interesting conversation about comedy and language and being sensitive to oppressed groups, such as women in terms of sexism. And so because this joke was told on the Jimmy Dore show, I, uh, I invited Jimmy to come and have a conversation. So that's what you're about to hear. I think it's a really excellent conversation, especially because I, I finished it with a different opinion than I started it with. So uh, hopefully you will see that transformation and be warned that I believe we use every single one of the most commonly used offensive words in the English language in this conversation. Here it is. All right. So Jimmy Dore, welcome to the show. And oh, thanks for having me on. So, so you, you've heard everything up to this point. You, I, I sent you the <laughs> clips from the past yes. couple of episodes. Yes. So to preface... I believe that the comparison between what happened on your show and Rush Limbaugh has been completely put to bed. I, I talked about it on the last episode. I thought that, that, that it was an absurd comparison, but it was, it was a window to a, a separate conversation about you know, word usage and yes. comedy oh, and, and all of those things. So, so taking a giant leap past how we got into this okay. conversation, let, let's hear your perspective uh, oh, on it okay. from there. So, well, first of all, I'm glad. I'm very glad because it's the the calls I heard. It sounded like they were still confused, even after you had explained it to them, <laughs> that they were still confused that there was some kind of comparison. So let me just say that uh, I want to just make people. I'm not standing up for sexist jokes or sexism. I'm a feminist, and uh, so so is Frank Conniff, a feminist. And um, I just wanted to make the point that intention and context is everything when it comes to humor, and that and that people are all the time. Lots of people are offended by great comedy all the time. We know that. I would just like to ask Mara and Joe who some of their favorite comedians are. I mean, Chris Rock is one of my favorites, and he says inappropriate things and words that are on Mara's list. Because Mara said in her call that you can't use certain words any, at any time. She said the word faggot or slut or any of the... Or, uh, she made an equivalence between Frank using the term put out and someone using the term faggot. 
which she made, she said, what if he would have called Rick Santorum son of faggot? I would say, well, I would have to hear the joke and hear about how it was used in context because maybe, so you, it, it, you can't just make a blanket statement like that, that certain words are bad or good because then we'd never have the Simpsons. We'd never have Archie Bunker because that's what real satirists do. And I know the fact that Rush Limbaugh hides behind a false claim of being a satirist when he's just being literal. He's just being literal and filled with hate. And, that's the, and when someone's being a satirist, they can portray or sometimes pretend to be filled with hate or saying something inappropriate. But that's not the, the, the point is something else. So sure. that you have to make the, the distinction. And so when she says that certain words aren't okay, you know, you have to think of, you know, it's okay. Sure. For, well, so, so just the other day, I mean, we, we had this conversation the other day, and, and you said that there are words that you have chosen to stop using. Correct. There are certain words, but I wouldn't, I, not like satirically, like if I was playing a character, and I, the words that I said I won't use are faggot and retard, which are very common in today's comedy clubs. Right. And I'm not saying that you can't use the, the, those words comedically. I think you can. I think just personally for me, they get misused so often comedically. And I'm not saying that people... And I'm not saying that Frank can't misuse a word. Just because he doesn't intend to misuse it doesn't mean he can't. Oh, of course. But I of think course. the intention is really what matters, and the context is also what matters. And sure. Let, let me just make one quick point about how people get offended by truly great comedy all the time. When I was a little kid, my parents wouldn't let us watch Monty Python because they found it offensive. And American culture still finds George Carlin's seven words not only offensive, but illegal to say on television and radio. That doesn't mean that that bit isn't funny or it's wrong. It just makes it inappropriate for certain people, and it certainly isn't appropriate according to our cultural mores. So, it, like, the, I won't say the words because I know you'll have to bleep them or something, but. <laughs> well, no, was, but. So, the, the word. Oh, okay, so the words were shit, piss, fuck, cunt, cocksucker, motherfucker, and tits. And I'm guessing at least three or possibly five of those words would be on Mara's list. But we know when a really talented comedian says them, Jay, people laugh uncontrollably. Sure. And they cheer. So, so okay, so, so, so th this is what I want to bring, because we're, I mean, we're both, and, and, you know, not just you and I, but, like, damn near everyone listening is, you know, we're, we're progressive, we're pro-feminist, yes. we're pro-gay rights, we're, you know, we're, we're all of these things. And, and uh, my, my sincere hope is that we're, we're all pro-nuance as well. Yes. So I, I cringe a little bit, because I've, I've heard it from, uh, you know, a caller, I've heard it from you uh, multiple times, when you say that context is everything, literally everything. And, and, and it, it makes me cringe, not because I don't think that you're almost entirely right. <laughs> it's that when you, when you use the word that it's everything, it leaves no room for other ideas. So, so what, what I want to bring to this idea, and, and like, I think that the, right. the idea that Mara is bringing forward and like the reason why you have decided to stop using the words faggot and retard in, in, you know, in your uh, comedy is that there is room for something other than context. There's a little bit of, of, of space there, you know, where society speaks up and is like, hey, you know what? I get your context. I get your intention. But even though you intended in a good way and even though you're on my side and all of that, some words are so painful that, that you're, you know, eventually they, they, they rise to that level. What words would those be? Uh, I, well, I mean, faggot and nigger come to mind immediately. Oh. 
Okay, so you don't think there's any way that a comedian can use no. the word? No, 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 no. I'm pro nuance. I'm oh, okay. very pro nuance. So, so you're saying that sometimes it is appropriate to use those words, right? So and the so, context is what matters. <laughs> is that what you're saying? What, what I'm saying is is that it requires you know a, a lot of thought, and and I mean I know that your position is it takes a very talented uh, comedian to handle these words Correct. properly. Yes, and and so uh, I don't I don't want there to be uh, this this sort of uh, you know instant backlash against anyone who pushes comedians to be more sensitive of uh, oppressed groups. You know, right. so if, if a woman speaks up saying, hey, as a woman, I find some words offensive, right. I, I, I don't want the, the comedian's reaction to be, you're wrong because my context and intention is everything, therefore your opinion doesn't matter. You see what I'm saying? Sure, sure. But I think someone making that blanket statement, I don't think that that's an intelligent statement to say that, hey, these words offend me in any context, so please don't ever use these words. Is that, that's what you're saying, right? That someone would be saying that? I, I, well, I mean, I don't, I don't want to you know, put well, words in anyone else's mouth. Right. I, you know, I, I would hope that anyone coming to you with that sort of a, a, a complaint would be nuanced themselves and say, you know that it, that it's important to be incredibly careful how you use them. I, I, I yes, actually, I, it is, I, so it is important to be. That's what I'm saying. I'm not saying sure. that they're you, they're easily misused. You know, that's why it takes a really talented guy to be able to handle them. Right. So what you kind of are making my point, I think. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you're saying that yes, words can offend in a lot of different situations that you don't think they can. And that's why you have to put thought into them and make sure you're using them correctly. But ultimately, there are no words that are on a list that are unusable. Is that what you're saying? Uh, essentially. essentially. Okay. See, I, I, think, I, I really think that there is so much less light between you and I and the callers mm -hmm. than that, that we feel like there is. I, I, I feel like there's, there's some degree of miscommunication and, and some degree of just like missing each other's points just right. a little bit, you know, because because what 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 oppressed groups of of any kind, whether they be like genuine minorities, like you know LGBT community, or uh, you know, ironically, women are the majority of the population, but they're right. oppressed anyways. What I feel, I, as if I can speak for any of them, of course, but you know, what I hear from them is, please be more sensitive to how words you use can perpetuate our bad situation. Yes, that is, yes. I would never want to do a joke. Yes. Oh, that is such a good point, Jay. Thanks for making that point. Awesome. That is such a good point. Yes. I think, uh, point well taken from you and your callers, if that was the point was, please be sensitive to how you use words, because if you use them in the wrong way, it forwards this de degradation of women. Exactly. That, and, that, that is, I believe, exactly what Mara from Pittsburgh was trying to get yes. across. You and I are straight white males. And, and so we have, like, we simply don't have the perspective of an oppressed group. And so, so what I'm trying to be much more sensitive to is when I hear from those groups to take what they're saying really, really seriously and try to understand in a, in a much deeper way that no matter what your intention, no matter, you know, what context, uh, that, that sometimes things that are said hurt those oppressed groups in ways that, that you and I can hardly imagine. And, and, and often it's just perpetuating 
their situation so that it takes them longer to gain equality. So like with Frank's joke, I mean, I mean, you uh, go ahead and tell us what, what was your opinion on, on Frank's joke in question? You know, and I think Frank feels the same way. If he had to make the joke again, he wouldn't. Yeah. You know, uh, I wouldn't. You know, when he said it, it I just tried to because I knew that it could be easily mis misinterpreted and I knew that sure. it could. And the whole point of the bit that we were doing was in support of his daughter. I really had genuine sympathy for her. I still do. Right. And uh, and so then he did that. I'm like, ah, uh, you don't want to like uh, miscolor the bit. You don't want to miscolor the, the 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 intention of this bit with something that someone's gonna take as a cheap joke. Right. Even though it was, even though I know where Frank's coming from, I could see exactly what happened. Exactly. Yeah. Of course. He, like, so that's what I was worried about, and that's exactly what happened. Right. And and you know what? I don't mind people getting. I don't mind the idea of some people are going to miss this joke, but I want to do it for a joke that's really worth it. You yeah, know right, what I mean. Right. And I don't think Frank's joke was worth it. I don't think he thinks it was. That's why it was something said in passing. Yeah, of course. Which is another. Which is another big difference between that thing we don't want to talk about and what Frank did. <laughs> I think. So I, I think we've cleared this up uh, quite nicely. Did, did you have a last uh, point to add? Yeah. No. I, I think we uh, we did too. So thanks for uh, thanks for doing this. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on. Okay, Jay. So there we go. That was the conversation. And I, I certainly hope that you heard uh, right there somewhere in the middle, Jimmy just tied me into a knot. And that is where I was having my my realization and, and changing my perspective. Because I went into the conversation, you know, in my head, I was thinking, you know, context can't be everything can it that seems that seems so lacking in nuance it, it, it seems like it leaves no room for for you know mobility and, and, and movement and other ideas to come in and, and and mix and so so context can't be all there is to it but in my heart i knew i i really have always believed my whole life i've always believed that no word is it should actually be forbidden because given the right context it's it's not offensive and and so I, I was twisted up and, and didn't I, I couldn't say what I was trying to say. And what what didn't surprise me in the least is that after we, you know, we, we uh, recorded for about 15 minutes, I cut it down to about 11, cutting out, uh, you know, just, you know, mishmash. And then and then I was not the least bit surprised to, to find that we talked for like another 20 minutes on the subject. And, and so by doing that, we were really able to refine what we were talking about and, and, uh, and you know, and really got to the core of it, I think. And, and so I think that the whole thing can best be summed up in an agreement that we made. I went ahead and spoke for all liberals in the country. I mean, I, I wouldn't be so presumptuous as to, as to speak for all liberals in the world. I'll just take the, the United States. So I was speaking for all liberals in the country, and Jimmy was speaking for all comedians. And, and I said, okay, here's the deal. We will grant to you that context really is everything. It really is. There, there, there are no exceptions that we can think of where context cannot forgive the use of any given word in the language. And in return, comedians will recognize that there are some words that go along a spectrum from the relatively innocuous uh, phrases such as I hear she puts out, which is offensive. Uh, it, it perpetuates slut shaming against women, but it is relatively innocuous compared to other much harsher words such as faggot or nigger and so on. So 
when using these words, comedians will recognize that a great, great deal of care and context needs to be built around a very finely tuned joke in order to get away with using those those words. And so I put forward that suggestion, and Jimmy uh, was very, very enthusiastically in agreement about that. So essentially what happened is that I learned something that he already knew, surprise, surprise, because he's a professional comedian and knows what he's talking about, and I was kind of learning my way through this whole conversation. So there we go. We have an agreement. Comedians are allowed to be comedians. They are allowed to use any words they want, but when they choose to use those words that can be offensive to oppressed groups, they better be damn sure that they know what they're doing and that they're building a foundation of context that that allows them to use those words without being offensive. And Jimmy is is really a great example of that. I mean, he does a progressive radio show as a you know he's a comedian first, but a political pundit, a very very close second, and he cares a great deal about progressive issues. So we just happened to uh, have this issue come up on on his show, and we got a great perspective on the whole uh, whole discussion from him. So that's it for today. I'm just going to say uh, thanks to everyone for listening, supporting the show, and telling everyone you know about it. Stay tuned in to the show between episodes on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always listed in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to be A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor Who take you out